Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, state of emergency. To the protesters, I say, we've heard you, and it's time to go. Ontario declares a state of emergency to try to put an end to the illegal protests and blockades, but why is there such weak enforcement? Where's the plan to end the protests? What will the long-term economic impacts be? And does the federal government have a plan for its controversial vaccine mandates? The emergency preparedness minister, Bill Blair, joins us along with the mayors of Windsor and Ottawa. Then, restrictions removed? We are well positioned to live with this virus as we do with many other infectious diseases. Alberta and other provinces moved to start lifting COVID-19 restrictions. Are those plans politically motivated by the truckers or led by science? And how will the blockade in Coots, Alberta come to an end? We go one-on-one -on -one with Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Plus, blame game? Canada is suffering. Canada needs some hope. And the blame rests squarely on his shoulders. The Conservative Party of Canada has spent the last two weeks endorsing and enabling these blockades across the country. Will the Liberals or the Conservatives pay a political price for their positions on both the protests and the mandates? Former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore joins us as a special guest on the Scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. This morning, even after a state of emergency by the province of Ontario was declared the most important economic artery in Canada, the Ambassador Bridge that goes between Windsor, Ontario and Detroit, Michigan, and the most important symbol of Canada's democracy, Parliament Hill, both remain under what the Premier of Ontario calls a siege. This is a pivotal, pivotal moment for our nation. The eyes of the world are upon us right now, and what they are seeing is not who we are. It's not what Canada is about. This is not how we try to change things here in Canada. It is week three of the protests that began over vaccine mandates. Now, of course, it's morphed into a lot more. This morning, police began moving in harder again to try to clear the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge. Some arrests have finally been made. Right now, the bridge, though, still remains closed. It's an evolving situation. Meantime, in the nation's capital, it's not really evolving. The protesters mocked the state of emergency and police and held yet another big party on the streets around Parliament Hill complete now with hot tubs, dance stages and fireworks. Businesses in that city's downtown have been shuttered. How does all this end? The Prime Minister weighed in on Friday. Everything is on the table because this unlawful activity has to end and it will end. Meantime, border blockades also remain at Coots, Alberta and Emerson, Manitoba. How will all this finally come to an end? What is the plan? as the country is facing deep economic consequences and continued threats of more blockades. Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Emergency Preparedness, Bill Blair. Minister, let, let me begin with the Ambassador Bridge, the most critical economic infrastructure in the country right now. A lot of folks don't understand how police went in 24 hours ago. They did not clear it. They made no arrests for 24 hours. Why is it taking so long to resolve this? First of all, let me begin by acknowledging the importance of the declaration made by the province of Ontario of a state of emergency and the regulations that they brought forward yesterday. Um, and, and the important work that the OPP is now leading <clears throat> on behalf of, of, of our police services in, in order to, to open that bridge up and, and open up the, that trade 
Um, I, I acknowledge to you that the Ambassador Bridge is one of our most important pieces of critical infrastructure. Uh, the, the people that are demonstrating there, I, I don't think all of them understand the, the huge harm that they are doing to the workers in Ontario, to the manufacturing processes, to our, the Canadian economy. But their leaders clearly do. And, and that's why they've targeted the Ambassador Bridge, because it is a significant right. artery for the lifeblood of, of the Canadian economy and Canadian workers. And I know you can't influence policing because you're, you're in politics now. But I'll tell you what Canadians are saying. They're saying, what the hell are police doing, sir, to be candid? No arrests were made. If this is such an important economic artery, if this is having a devastating effect, and it is, as you know, in the auto sector and other jobs, police pour in there for 24 hours. They make no arrests. They talk people off. This morning, as you and I are talking, or the first arrests, why are police not enforcing the law? That is what people want to know. What is the explanation on that? Well, and, and I spent 40 years in policing, and, and I will tell you, the, the country needs the police to do their job. We need them to, to, to enforce our laws, to restore peace and, and order at, at our borders and in our cities, and, and we need them to use the tools that are available to them. And, and frankly, I don't want to have any arguments over jurisdiction. I, I think very clearly, and I'm, I'm in agreement with all Canadians, we all need the police to do their job, and we're listening very carefully to the police on what they need to do their job. And that's why important discussions going on in, 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 in bringing forward regulations that the police need to be effective and also ensuring that they have the, the people, the resources, and the tools wow. they need to do the job. But, but ultimately, it comes down to we need the police to, to restore right. order, oh. to uphold the law. So as the prime minister said on Friday, everything's on the table. What does he mean exactly? Does that mean emergency powers are on the table for the federal government? Yeah, I will tell you as well, we've been in constant contact with the province of Ontario. The Premier and the Prime Minister have talked a number of times about what needs to be done. The Premier took, I think, very strong and important action yesterday um, in the, the, not only the declaration of emergency, but, but moving quickly to bring forward the new regulations that, that are authored, authorized under, under those emergency but, but powers. what else we, is on the table? Like, what does everything on the table mean? What is when, everything? When circumstances exceed the capacity of the provinces to manage it under, under their authorities, we're quite prepared to use additional authorities that are available uh, to, to, to the federal government. But it's also, there's other federal Sorry, resources. I just, but, but what does that mean? Does that mean well, the emergency we have, we have powers? An, we, we, have, we have an emergency act, and I will tell you, there has been a, 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 a near constant and vigorous examination of those authorities and what's required. But, but, but most importantly, Evan, it also informs discussions with the province. We've been working with the province and, and asking them very clearly, what do you need? What more do you need? The way the law is written is, is it, we, it, we've got to go first to those provincial authorities. I understand that. I, 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 they I, use them. I understand that, you're, that you, you go first and it's the jurisdiction of the province. I understand how it works. But you're, I just I want to be clear this morning. You're saying that you are prepared, the federal government is prepared to use if this thing continues to lack of enforcement, economic um, consequences. You're saying this morning that the federal government is considering and prepared to use its emergency powers. We are prepared to use every tool available to us, including emergency powers, and to make sure that we bring every resource of the federal government to, to bear right. this. This is a critical situation for the country, Evan. The, 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 the closing of, of our borders, the targeting on critical infrastructure, particularly our points of entry, by the people behind these protests, is, 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 a, is a significant national security threat to this country, and we have to do what is necessary to, to, to end it. And that includes supporting the, the police in doing their important job, but also looking at every other resource of the federal government that we will, we're, we're okay. quite prepared to utilize to resolve the situation. Look, your government ruled out these, uh, this was all sparked when, when your government imposed the vaccine mandates on cross-border truckers. 
I, I understand the U.S. has it, and I also understand uh, that this has morphed. But you've got your own liberal MPs, like Joel Lightbound, criticizing your government stand on mandates, saying it's time to stop dividing people, stop pitting one part of the population against another. Dr. Theresa Tam said it's trying, it's time to to, to re-examine things like uh, vaccine passports and PCR tests at the border. The question: Has your government exacerbated this by the fact that you, we have seen? No firm federal plan on when the federal government will lift federal mandates. So I'm going to ask you, what is the actual plan and what is the threshold that the public can know? Okay, the government, we've hit this threshold. Now the government's going to roll back some of their vaccine mandates. What is that threshold? Yeah, let me be really clear. Those mandates were not put in place to divide people, but rather to protect people. They were there, they were put in place to protect the health and safety of Canadians. And, 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 Evan, very clearly, vaccines work. Vaccines are the, the thing that are helping us get through this pandemic, and we've done everything possible to make those vaccines available and to encourage can Canadians to, to get vaccinated because it's important. And that's why, that's why those mandates exist. We also recognize, and we examine every day, the, the measures that we have put in place to protect Canadians, and when the, the advice and the circumstances change, we have But what is committed. it? But, but like, like, Mr. Blair, look around the country. People will just want to know. It's not good enough to say, you know, we'll change it. When What's the threshold? People, provinces are lifting it. Dr. Theresa Tam saying it. Members of your own party. People and just want to say, look, what 90% of people have had a vaccine. What is the number that Canadians can be transparent and say, okay, we've hit this number. Now the federal government, for their restrictions, I know the rest are provincial, will say, okay, now we'll roll back. Why is it so hard to give us a clear, transparent roadmap and number? Yeah, well, 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 first of all, there's a number of measures that, that Dr. Tam has spoken to us about, particularly with respect to, to testing at our borders and travel advisories. And, and that advice is being updated, and, and we'll hear very soon, very shortly, from our, our health minister on his response to those, those, that advice. But the vaccine mandates, first of all, the vaccination of Canadians is, is the thing that, that works to keep Canadians safe. And we are, we are not intending to ease our restrictions on, on the need for vaccinations until this pandemic is over. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, people, I, listen, l let me acknowledge right up front, I know Canadians are frustrated and they want to see an end to this pandemic. So do I. So does everybody in our government. We've all been working tirelessly to protect Canadians and to bring this to an end. And when it, we get to an end, when we get to that, that right. end state where, where it's no longer necessary to continue to promote and, and, and mandate the use of vaccines, we'll, we'll, we'll right. certainly be prepared to move on that. But we haven't reached that point yet, Evan. Right. You know, we, we've, we've just come through the Omicron wave. We have uh, to make sure that we're prepared uh, for, for whatever comes in the future. All right. Uh, I got to leave it there this morning. Um, emergency prepared to minister on a very fluid situation. It's changing literally by the minute. Bill Blair, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Evan. Coming up, bridge to chaos. How damaging is the blockade at Canada's most important economic border crossing? Will new emergency measures help finally with reinforcement? The Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins and the Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson join us on the situation in their cities. Stay right here with Question Period. So, will Ontario's declaration of a state of emergency finally put an end to the ongoing protests and blockades throughout that province? Doesn't look like that. 24 hours after it took effect, finally arrests are being made this morning at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. In the nation's capital of Ottawa, the occupation escalated again over the weekend. Over 4,000 protesters partied around Parliament Hill. They had hot tubs, fireworks, they got a soundstage built. They are digging in. 
Now under the new emergency measures, police can levy stiff fines and even jail time for blocking border crossing bridges or ports, railways or 400 series highways. Penalties can go up to $100,000 and a year imprisonment. But why is it taking so long to make arrests? Why is there so little enforcement? What are the long-term impacts of all this? And will more blockades spring up? Joining me now are the mayors at the heart of this. Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins joins me and Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson. Uh, mayors, I, I know these are busy times. I'll start with you in Windsor. Uh, Mayor Dilkins, uh, this morning we're watching this unfold. Um, when will the bridge finally open up? Well, uh, Evan, good morning. Hopefully very, very soon. This is a, a critical piece of infrastructure between our two countries carrying $400 million a day uh, in international trade. And so we're down to the last 35 or so protesters on site. Uh, police have moved in to make arrests. They are towing vehicles. Uh, and we've got lots of police resources on the ground by way of public order units, RCMP support, OPP support. So lots of trained teams are here to deal with this. And we're at the very end, uh, I hope, uh, here in the city of Windsor. Okay, just let me just stay in Windsor just real quick. Why has it taken so long? The, the, they moved in yesterday, sir. Everyone thought this was going to last a couple hours. They made no arrests for maybe, what, one arrest in 24 hours. Why, why is it still going on the next day? What's taken so long? Yeah, it is, it is very, very frustrating, and I understand police have a difficult job to do. There have been calls of bomb threats. Uh, you have people who are here, sort of the, the last... Uh, of the Mohicans, uh, using that term to say these are people who are saying they're willing to die uh, for the cause. And so that requires a different police uh, tactical response and how you deal with these people. Uh, it is very frustrating. It's frustrating for Canadians to watch. It's frustrating for, for Windsorites to have to live through, to, to not see action taken immediately. Uh, but police are trying to be very cautious, very measured in their approach so that nobody gets hurt, uh, that they don't further inflame the situation, but that they do end it. Uh, Mayor Watson, in the nation's capital, it seems like you and the police have totally lost control over the city. Let's let's be frank. Protesters are mocking police. They've, they're 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 digging in. Um, has your I know you you have to be careful here, but has your police chief lost control of the city? And is that why the OPP with the Integrated Command Center and the RCMP have basically come in to to take over because the police chief of Ottawa has lost control of his city? Well, there's no no question. Uh... The control was lost uh, a week or so ago, and it's just gotten worse on weekends, Evan. Uh, we sent a request to the federal and provincial government for 1,800 officers that we need now to bring control and order to the city. And unfortunately, both other orders of government have not uh, stepped up to the plate like we'd like them to. So all weekend, we've been working with our federal and provincial partners to stress the urgency. All you have to do is show video that you show on your, your network, Evan, to see how the situation is completely out of control and how the city has felt abandoned by the two orders of government that should be here helping us with reinforced officers, both to help uh, give our officers a, a day off after 14 or 15 days of working in the frigid cold, but also to have that police presence okay. so we can, in fact, enforce the court order that was given. And we're, we're going to court tomorrow. Uh, to seek our own injunction as well. Right. Mayor, of course, an injunction is only needed after uh, laws aren't enforced. You could still enforce the laws before the injunction. But, Mayor, why did it take That's a 21-year-old young woman in Ottawa to privately seek an injunction, for example, just to stop the horn honking? Like, the city solicitors didn't even take that step for days. Has the city failed to protect its citizens and to let this, what the may, what the, what you've called the siege, you've called an insurrection, what the premier has called um, an occupation. 
Well, it is an occupation. I agree with that. And uh, there are lots of uh, uh, people to point blame at. My objective over the course of the next 24, 48 hours is to get the officers and get them in to enforce the law. And you're quite right. We didn't need a court injunction. It gives us more heft and it allows us to uh, come down heavier on these uh, people who are breaking the law, $100,000 fine, a uh, one year in jail term. But as you know, and I think Drew pointed to this, there are some diehards in there that couldn't, you know, uh, give a hoot uh, about going and spending a, a night a, a year in jail. They seem to think of it as a badge of honor. And the disgraceful performance uh, by uh, the protesters to tear down the fencing around the cenotaph, that was put to respect the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and to stop uh, people right. from the convoy of urinating on public property. Okay. Uh, let me just go back to Windsor for a minute. Um, I don't know when this bridge is going to open, Mayor Dilkins. What's the long-term impact here? Because you've got the, the auto sector uh, who is trying to make a case to the United States against buy American policies. And you know in Michigan they're already saying this is too vulnerable now. Uh, we should just move all those parts suppliers into the United States. How, what are the long-term consequences economically uh, of letting this kind of blockade happen? Well, listen, I, I think the immediate uh, issue is that we've had three, uh, $3 billion impact on trade between our two countries already. It has been absolutely massive. But long term, of course, this gives the, the, the folks who are very much on the Buy American camp a narrative to be able to move forward and start pressing that narrative saying, look, there's danger of, of, of having offshore production or not even offshore, out of country production. Uh, and it gives them a, a chance to build that narrative. I, I really don't think at the end of the day, if things end today and the bridge can open tomorrow, uh, that a seven or eight day issue is going to destroy a 200 year relationship and all of the supply chains that are built up. But it does politically give a chance for folks to have that narrative. And, and, uh, and it's, it's not healthy at this particular time. Okay, so, so there's movement in Windsor. Mayor, Mayor Watson, look, um, people are wondering, people are in, in, in Ottawa are wondering there's been a failure of policing, failure on the municipal, provincial, and federal level. There's a lot of blame game going on. Give us the plan here, sir. When will police actually begin enforcing a law? When will you get the resources and people will actually see these, this protest disperse and businesses and Ottawa get back to some kind of normality? Well, my hope is that uh, we'll be able to reach some agreement today to ensure that the police services that we've asked for for over five days now start arriving. Uh, no more sort of thoughts and prayers with the people of Ottawa. We need actual action from the province, from the federal government. We do not have the resources to bring order to this situation, and that's why we reached out to those other orders of government for the very fact that they have the resources, both financial and uh, personnel, to come in here, make arrests, bring a semblance of order uh, to the, the, the residents, particularly my number one priority is to bring some peace to the people who live in the residential communities. They're the ones that are the hardest hit along with the small business community. We need to get the trucks out of those residential communities uh, because they're spewing diesel. They're still at times honking their horns, not as much, but they're harassing people on the street. It's completely unacceptable behavior in the civil society and the police need to act. Mayor Dilkins, Mayor Watson, uh, uh very difficult situation in both your cities. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks, Evan. All right, when we come back, lifting restrictions. As more provinces move to lift restrictions, is it a response to the ongoing protests against vaccine mandates or a response to the science? And what will it take to resolve the ongoing border blockade in Coots, Alberta? Alberta Premier Jason Kenney joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period.
So is it the treatment or the trucks? What is driving provinces to start to lift their various COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates? After March 14, almost all restrictions will be lifted. We're talking, uh, taking a calculated risk to learn to live with the virus. I think it's incumbent on all of us as governments to uh, put the public health orders in when they're necessary, and those aren't easy decisions, but we're also incumbent to remove them uh, when they have run their course. On Friday, Canada's Chief Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, said the peak of Omicron is now passed and restrictions will be easing because of the high vaccination rates. But the truckers at the barricades allege it's all because of their pressure. The fact is, even before those trucker protests and the border blockades in places like Coots, Alberta, the provinces were already saying they are going to lift restrictions. But are plans now being accelerated due to the pressure? Well, Alberta is one key test case. Vaccine passports are no longer needed there. Students will not be required to wear masks in schools starting tomorrow. And nearly all public health measures will be lifted March 1st if the situation in hospitals improves. Are plans to lift public health restrictions politically motivated? And what can be done to end the blockade at Coots, Alberta? Let's find out. Joining me now is Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Uh, Premier, the, the, your province, Ontario, they're all, everyone's dealing with blockades, so I want to start with there. The one at uh, Coots, at the border, uh, almost two weeks. Will you follow the lead of Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who called a state of emergency, um, and, and, and use more force to increase penalties and maybe enforcement? Well, we already had stronger laws than Ontario. Last year, we passed the Defensive Critical Infrastructure Act that gives the police enormous powers and very st uh, stiff uh, fines and penalties, including the power of imprisonment. Uh, we have made it clear to the RCMP, who is our provincial police service, uh, that they can and should use all of these powers. Uh, and in terms of the Emergency Act, uh, we have considered it, but we don't see how that would add any, any significant additional powers to our situation here. The Critical Infrastructure Defense Act, which you passed in May of 2020, um, I understand that, but according to that legislation, each day a site is blocked or damages a new offense, penalties up to 10,000 a day for the first offense, 25,000 for subsequent offenses, possible jail time of up to six months. I guess the question a lot of people are saying is, you got the law, what good is it if it's not enforced? Is it being enforced? Well, it, the first and only time it's been used uh, since it was adopted two years ago was against somebody who was charged with incitement to block critical infrastructure at Coots. Uh, we have um, reminded the RCMP uh, and made it clear to the public that that law is there purpose-built for a situation like this. But Evan, you know full well that um, uh, politicians cannot uh, dictate enforcement tactics to the police. So we are doing everything we can to support them in terms of policy and resources. Um, and we're clear about our expectation on enforcement. Right. They've got a very powerful law there. And um, I, but at the end of the day, uh, they're dealing with a very fluid and, and difficult situation. I have to respect their tactical uh, judgment on but when, where, and how to enforce. You have voice support for truckers who are against the vaccine mandate in the past. Obviously, that was one of the triggers of this protest. Do you take any responsibility for giving credibility to the organizers who said, hey, this is great. We've got people like Premier Kenny. We can do this. And now um, you've been swallowed by the very beast you fed. No, come on, De Evan. I think the shoe has to be on the other foot. The prime minister adopted a policy with the trucker vax mandate uh, that has no compelling public health rationale. 
We have tens of millions of active Omicron infections across North America. The idea that a few thousand unvaccinated truckers, who might test negative, by the way, crossing the border in their cabs in isolation, somehow constitute a public health, health menace is ridiculous. It's bad public health theater. He provoked this situation. He's added fuel to the fire by essentially calling all of the protesters Nazis. And um, I, I think this has been a failure of leadership on the part of Ottawa, well, to be well, honest with you. Uh, I, I make no apologies for stating our view, um, which I did before these protests began. Okay, let, let me just be, I want to tone the rhetoric down. I don't think he called all the truckers Nazis. He pointed out there are hateful groups. He dismissed them as a fringe group. And he did say during the election, there's a fringe group of racists. I understand that. what he said. Um, I want to talk about some of the elected officials, though, some of your former colleagues in the Conservative Party federally. Pierre Polyever, who's running for the leadership, said he's, quote, proud of the truckers right now. Is that hurting the cause for premiers like you to, to try to get rid of blockades when senior conservatives are um, supporting their cause? I don't think these folks care a whole lot about uh, comments like that. Uh, all I can say is this. You cannot be selective in the application of the rule of law. If you believe that it's wrong for people to block a railway or a pipeline because of their environmental convictions, then it's equally wrong for people to block a highway or a streets uh, because of their views on health po public health policy. So the, the law has to be blind, um, and uh, that is uh, something that no legislator should question, which is the, the very principle of the rule of law. Alberta is beginning to lift restrictions, uh, and there's always about timing. A lot of people say it's science. Some say you're, you're caving in to the truckers. It's political expediency. Why did you decide to do the lift? Well, the initial things we've done is to lift measures on kids because after two years of their lives being uh, disrupted by COVID and COVID restrictions, enough already. Uh, I, we just made a, a decision in totally, regardless of what's happening with protests and noise, that let's put kids first. Secondly, the proof of vaccination program, so-called vaccine passports, no longer serve a defensible purpose. They were brought in partly to increase vaccination rates. We did that, but they've been frozen for nearly two months. And secondly, to reduce transmission amongst unvaccinated people at a time when they were more likely to be infected or transmit. That is no longer the case with the transmissibility of Omicron and the waning defense of vaccines against transmission. So we're following, look, you got to change your tactics as the disease changes and keeping these measures in place to be bloody minded in the face of protesters, I think would be indefensible. Okay, but but that's my question. What's the data here? Here's what you said on January 27th. Let me just play you a clip, a clip Premier. Now is not the right time uh, to be relaxing measures when the health hospitals under are under so much pressure. But uh, I very much hope that we can move towards uh, widespread relaxation of public health measures, including the proof of vaccination program uh, in the foreseeable future, uh, once we start to see the pressure in hospitals trend down. Okay, you said that was based on hospitalization rates. Those numbers, sir, haven't changed much in the, in the last two weeks. January 27th, 1,579 COVID patients in hospital. February 10th, 1,586 patients in hospital. I don't see the difference. So how can people see this other than political if the data is the exact same? 
Well, we're about three weeks past our Omicron peak here in Alberta. Uh, all of our trends are, go are going in the right direction. Positivity rate, new cases, total active cases, wastewater data, and new hospital admissions, which is the key leading indicator of pressure on the hospitals. So um, we know that that pressure is going to continue to abate. We're at 87% capacity for acute care uh, occupancy in our hospitals, which is lower than it has often been at this time of year. All right, can, can I just ask you one last question? And I hear this in the federal government as well, and I'm pressing the federal government to tell me the same thing. As soon as it is safe to do so, that's the nub of it. Who decides when it is safe? What is your definition of when it is safe? You're lifting mask mandates, others say uh, always bowing to political pressure. There's no science behind it. What is your definition of when it is safe to lift restrictions? It's essentially when uh, COVID is not posing a risk of catastrophic outcomes in terms of our healthcare capacity. Uh, and Evan, the, the disease is changing. Our tactics need to change to address the changing disease. For example, right now, 40% of our uh, COVID acute care patients are there with and not for COVID. COVID is only an incidental condition for them. They're not being treated for COVID. So uh, this, th these are some of the facts that we have to take into account. In, in two of the past, uh, two of the three years prior to COVID, we had more patients in hospital in, in January and February than we do today. We were able to cope with it then. We, should, we are able to, to cope with this now without the extraordinary measures uh, that have ha been in place in much of the past two years. All right, I gotta leave it there. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, always a pleasure, sir, thanks. Thanks, Evan. All right, coming up, blockade fallout. How will the protests at the border impact Canada's economy? And what about the political fallout? The scrum is next, and we'll be joined by our special guest, the head of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, Flavio Volpe. Stay right here with Question Period. So protests that originally began, it seems like forever ago, as a fight against vaccine mandates at borders may finally end, but we don't know when. When all is said and done, what will the long-term impacts, not only on Canada's politics, but on Canada's economy, especially the auto sector, especially after illegal blockades at the Ambassador Bridge, several automakers in Ontario temporarily reduced production due to border delays. And on average, the vital trade artery is responsible for over $400 million of trade a day. How will this uh, blockade impact that trade? And what about the realignment of politics in all this? The Scrum is here to dig into that. Glenn McGregor is our CTV News senior political correspondent. Marika Walsh, political reporter with the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is Flavio Volpe. He's the head of the Autom Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. He's also the guy that brought the injunction to get rid of the protesters on the Ambassador Bridge. Good morning to everyone. I don't know if in the, this is still the night for you because you don't sleep. Flavio, let me start with you. Um, the bridge looks like, as we speak, it's cleared of protesters but not open yet. Um, how damaging has this been and what are you worried about now? Uh, it's very damaging. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, the last time the border was closed uh, to uh, trade in this fashion, and I know we're just talking about one access point, but was 9-11. 9-11 was a national security issue and it was closed by the government uh, in uh, Washington. It took us a week to bring it back, um, but you know, the, the long-standing uh, damage of that was, how do we secure supply chains? This one was closed by 
a few dozen people in pickup trucks and uh, and a lack of resolve to get rid of them at the exact same time that we've been discussing with the Americans, that your buy American policy is going to hurt you if you don't include Canada. I just came back from Washington last week uh, where we were trying to work quietly Canada into that into that uh, the buy American legislation. Now, uh, th that's all blown up. And, uh, I, I, you know, I couldn't go back to Washington with a straight face after this. This, Marika, let, let's pick up on that. The, there's big economic consequences mm -hmm. here, but you got the state of emergency. Uh, wasn't declared until two weeks after the occupation in, in Ottawa. Uh, I mean, we're talking about federal responsibility. There's provincial responsibility. Uh, the province has it, but what do you make of the action or lack of action on it? Well, I think, Evan, it shows that the trigger point for the province to act was the border closure, not what was happening in Ottawa. And so, you know, there will be punishment and pain, I think, for the governments, both provincially and municipally, who both have elections this year to contend with, that Ottawa was ignored for so long, both, I think, by the province and in, in large part by the federal government as well. We've heard a lot of process, a lot of talking from the federal government. So far, not a lot of action. That continued on Saturday with the press release from the prime minister's office saying they were looking at further actions that were going to be immediately taken, except we don't know what those are, and they're still going to be talking about them on Sunday. Yeah, Glenn, pick up on that. Yeah, it looks like the border issue is going to be resolved at least temporarily from some of the scenes we were seeing uh, this morning uh, from Windsor, uh, but it could happen again. Uh, those people could come back, and it could be right back on uh, Doug Ford's desk uh, once more. But uh, the thing that is puzzling and, and uh, picking up what Marika said about this is the complete lack of action at the federal level. We have heard this eyewash about consulting with our partners. Uh, we get updates that the prime minister is meeting with his incident response group, and then nothing happens. The only federal response so far has to be, been to provide a number of RCMP to be deployed in Ontario, but it's still far less than the city actually needs. And now we're at the point three weeks into into the the third week, uh, a third weekend we've just finished, the options are closing for the Prime Minister if he's going to uh, solve this here. Yeah, you, you think of uh, Justin Trudeau's dad was just watch me and for many people right now Justin Trudeau's just wait for me. We don't know what he's going to do. <laughs> let, let me go to, to Flavio Volpe on the economic cost. You, you talk about that. There's, there's concern about economic uh, cost. But you've also commented on the role of political leadership in yep. this. Uh, look, there's a lot of political leaders that have openly supported the trucker pro protest. Like, again, you're from a manufacturing. When you hear political leadership who say, uh, I'm proud of the truckers, as Mr. Polly ever said, or from the Trudeau side, you know, we'll see what we do. What's your, your response to the political leadership on this? So real people far away from Ottawa, and, and by the way, I spent a lot of my life in Ottawa, love Ottawa, but real people listen to words. And if there aren't any, they say, why is everybody silent? Uh, we're, we're watching uh, yahoos take over the country, uh, it seems, on television. And we're not seeing on the leadership side saying, here's where this thing, this thing is going to end. And on the other side, I mean, we got people like, like Pierre Palievre who said, I'm running to be prime minister. By the way, we, this is not the USA. You don't run to be prime minister. And then foment this kind of stuff that results in a lot of copycat action. People need to be held accountable for their words and what they're doing. How badly do you want that position? I think people should and will remember. Uh, Marika, what are you watching for now? 
Well, we're in a minority government, Evan. It's, what's astonishing to me is that the official opposition is so wrapped up in its own internal warfare that it's not able to hold the government to account effectively on this massive national security and economic issue that the prime minister is facing. Part of the reason why we're seeing this sort of gap in leadership, I think, is because we don't have an effective opposition that is focused its eyesight on the government. Instead, it's focused internally. And so I think, you know, that actually means that the Liberal government has a bit of an easier time in the House of Commons. And it means the Conservatives, as the official opposition, aren't fully focused on their job that Canadians elected them to do. Glenn, last word. What, what are you looking for now? Uh, by the way, no, no end in sight in Ottawa. Maybe, uh, as you said, temporary end in sight in, in, in Windsor. Other protests are springing up, political cleavages. It's a mess out there. What are you looking for? Yeah, on the political side, I mean, I'm, I'm still just amazed that there's so many Conservative MPs who didn't see this coming three weeks ago and decided to go all in with the truckers anyway. Uh, and, you know, I'm not surprised that uh, Pierre Polyev did, uh, but, and I think he can still uh, win the leader, even if this continues to go on, it may not prevent him from winning the party leadership. But, you know, right now you can bet that the Liberal Party's uh, communications teams and war rooms are pulling together all this social media. They basically got their ads ready and cut for the next election campaign because this is going to be something that they will use to hammer the Conservatives uh, again. And, you know, I guess the mathematics here, the only thing we don't know is the number of voters that the Conservatives would lose if Paul were, were to be leader and having supported the protests in this way, would it be offset by the small number of people that the party might pick up if they lost the, to the People's Party of Canada and Max Bernier? I don't think it would be. Uh, I, I think this is going to be really going to hobble uh, the Conservative Party if they go with Polyev into the next election campaign. At this moment, there are no winners politically in this situation, and it is changing by the second. Flavio Volpe, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Glenn McGregor, Mar Marika Walsh, always a pleasure to see both of you. Keep up the great work. All right, still to come, the blame game. Are politicians fueling divisions over pandemic policies? Will the Conservatives or the Liberals pay a political price for their stance on the protests and on vaccine mandates? Former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. So are there any political winners in the shambolic responses to the protests that have occupied both the most important symbol of democracy in the country, Parliament Hill, and the key economic choke points like the Ambassador Bridge and the crossing in Coots, Alberta? The truck convoy protesters have driven deep political fault lines in both major parties. After being accused by the opposition of causing division by demonizing the unvaccinated, a key MP in Justin Trudeau's own party, Joel Lightbound, repeated uh, all those claims and he held a rare press conference to do so. Check this out. They're worried that measures which ought to be exceptional and limited in time are being normalized with no end in sight. On Friday, as the protests grew and Ontario declared a state of emergency, the Prime Minister finally acknowledged that yes, there are growing pandemic frustrations with all Canadians and he hinted that pandemic-related border measures might soon be changing. We've heard your frustration with COVID, with the measures that are there to keep people safe. We've heard you. It's time to go home now. Meantime, the Conservatives are driving both ways on the political highway. After spending weeks openly supporting the truckers and taking pictures with the protesters, interim 
Conservative leader Candace Bergen grinded the political gears in reverse and called for the protests to end. But not all conservatives did the same. Pierre Polyevra, the leadership candidate, has continually supported the truckers. He said he's proud of them. Will conservatives pay a political price for initially supporting the protests or not? Will the liberals lose popularity for being too inflexible when it comes to COVID mandates by the federal government? Well, to detail all this, the Scrum is here. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief, Tanya McCharles, parliamentary reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest, who is not in the occupied zone of Ottawa right now, is the uh, former industry minister, James Moore. Uh, good to have you all here. Uh, James Moore, let me just start with you. Um, what are the dangers for the Conservatives and the Liberals posed by these entrenched pr uh, protests and these crises? Well, I mean, the, the, the dynamic for the Conservatives is not nearly as dire as I think it is for the Liberals, because they are the government. And they are the government because they were just re-elected three months ago, and they were re-elected specifically on a platform that they were the best entrusted to deal with COVID. Now, as COVID is moving forward from Delta to Omicron to post-Omicron, it seems like the government's rhetoric is still stuck in wave one, wave two of the, of the COVID uh, pandemic, and they haven't seemed to have adjusted at all. Add to that, you have these liberal backbenchers who are now adding weight to the credible argument that the prime minister has been using COVID-19 as a wedge tactic rather than a, a fundamental crisis and challenge for the country to manage its way through and to manage its way forward. So I think clearly the prime minister is the one who has the most risk at risk here. Todd, just pick up challenge to Justin Trudeau here as, um, you know, I know Ontario's got the state of emergency, but boy, the optics of this and the challenge of this are serious. Yeah, sure. The challenge is huge for the government. Just though, quickly to go to James's point, the Conservatives have the obligation to be a government in waiting, and the last two weeks haven't shown that. But the Liberals' challenge politically is, as, is, as James says, uh, to show that they're capable, competent managers still, and not just engaged in political warfare on this. I think what you saw is the, the Liberal government now finally seeing that it has to lay out some metrics for when it will start to lift measures, and the signal is very clear that in this coming week there's going to be a relaxation of border measures. Border measures have been at the heart of the convoy protest. As we know, it expanded. It morphed into something else. But I think now you're finally seeing uh, what looks more like a coordinated response with the emergency state of emergency in Ontario, uh, the um, crackdown on protests, and now the border measures finally being lifted. Yeah, Joyce, so how, how do you see it for a government? And then we'll, we'll swing back to the opposition. Well, I, you know what? I think the reaction was just too slow. Did it take 15 days mm -hmm. really to look at this and say, well, yeah, you know what? I woke up this morning and thought a Friday morning and, oh, yes, this may be a state of emergency. I, I, I think there was a lot of, uh, of political playing with this. And, uh, and I think there's a price to pay for all parties. Uh, probably, you know, Justin Trudeau at the beginning, look what he said about these protesters. Uh, basically calling them a bunch of knuckleheads. Uh, so he uh, was stoking, and the conservatives were, you know, exploiting. Uh, and, you know, calling it a freedom convoy, I would call it a freedom slash anger, uh, because that anger is palpable. And if the governing liberals haven't, haven't seen it, haven't felt it, um, it, it it's incredible. James, James. The Conservatives are in a, in a leadership race. Uh, Pierre Polyevre is the only one so far who's declared. But it's interesting to see th th that party now is calling for the end of the protest. That really happened after the Ambassador Bridge situation mm -hmm. happened. And then the state of emergency in Ontario. 
by the same token, the, I guess the front runner, Mr. Paul Ever, is all in on the truckers. I thank the truckers. I'm proud of the truckers. Simon, we're winning. Um, what are the dangers uh, of that, of, of hewing too closely or not closely enough to the trucker protest? I think Candace Bergen ultimately arrived at the right position this week, which is to say Canada is a liberal democracy, which is to say that you have the right to protest and to make your point heard. However, we are a democracy, which is to say that in the Parliament of Canada now, all of the parties are aligned. In the, in, the, in the legislature of Ontario, all of the parties are aligned. And in a democracy, the majority has rights. And the majority clearly in this country overwhelmingly do not believe that the occupation of Ottawa is justified and tolerable any longer. And they do not believe that we can have mob rule instead of the rule of law when it comes to our trading relationship with the United States. We cannot punch ourselves in the face and expect the country to be better off economically, socially, or politically by damaging ourselves with this, this, these kinds of actions. So I think they've arrived at the right position in Parliament. And in the longer term, Pierre Polyev, I think, will certainly have some communications challenges, but I think he's also taking a lot of that energy that's out there and trying to, I think, turn it in a direction that is politically advantageous to him. But I also think taking that energy and trying to drive it into a political party and, frankly, maybe make some use of it in a positive way in, in terms of getting people back engaged in politics instead of engaged in protest. Can, can you wrangle well, that energy, time to go for it? Well, that's, that's key, isn't it? I was just going to pick up on that because uh, I think the big question and challenge politically for all parties and for citizens of Canada, too, is, is this a moment? Is this a, a crisis but, but a fleeting one? Or is this the galvanization or mobilization of a political movement? Um, there were hundreds and hundreds and thousands of Canadians lining highway overpasses to cheer on those convoys as they arrived. And to the point of pandemic frustration, I mean, to what extent that now, uh, con I guess, consolidates behind maybe a Poiliev or maybe behind a People's Party or maybe some other wing? Um, look, I think that those are the bigger questions. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've seen any of the political leaders in the last two weeks address or try to speak to the broader public mm -hmm. and bring things right the temperature down yeah Joyce Joyce last word like is this as I think that's a great question Ton has asked yeah. is this a crisis or or a political inflection point where we're going to see some new uh, a new politics emerging in Canada well that's I think that is what we are seeing now uh, we have never seen this before these these are have confounded federal provincial municipal governments uh, police forces I mean how the will of a few uh, here has paralyzed so much uh, you know, a bridge, uh, the most important trading bridge with the United States, uh, the capital city of a G7 country. I mean, this, and, and they represent a lot of people. That's what I was talking about. That anger uh, is real, and it's out there. I got to leave it there. Uh, what a week, and, and, and a lot of politics to come in the week ahead. Uh, James Moore, Tony McCharles, Joyce Napier, thank you all so much for joining us. I think we all need a break. I know it's the Super Bowl. If you're going to watch the Super Bowl tonight, uh, I wish you well. It's my first Super Bowl without my dad. I know Joyce and I both recently lost our fathers. Uh, this is a night I wish I was uh, having a pop with my dad. But I'll be watching the Super Bowl. Take a break from politics for a while. We'll see you next week in seven short days.